Hello and welcome to the Oxford Sidebar Podcast for April 2012. Our speaker this month was Professor Jocelyn Bell Burnell, who talked about whether the world was going to end in 2012. We hope you enjoy. Thanks for coming to the Sidebar, and for those of you who haven't come out before, we're the Oxfordshire branch of the British Science Association, and we hold our Sidebars here once a month, normally on the third Thursday of the month, with obvious exceptions. Um, we have um, a recording that we make of our Sidebar Talks that's available for an audio podcast, and that's free to download from our website, oxfordsidebar.com. You can also find more about our upcoming talks there. You can leave your details if you want to get on our mailing list, or just come and have a chat with us afterwards if you want to find out more about who we are and what we do. Um, it's our great pleasure to have Professor Jocelyn Bell Burnell as our Sidebar speaker tonight, and although she probably needs no introduction. I'll just say a few quick words about her. Um, as you know, she's an astrophysicist, and she's now visiting professor at um, Oxford University. And along the way, she did her PhD in Cambridge. She did her undergrad in Glasgow. She was um, in Bath as the dean of science, as well worked for 10 years at Oxford um, Open University, and also was 18 months in Princeton. So she's had a very... Um, spanning career and has also received many honours and accolades. Uh, she's also the current president of the British Science Association and is also a fellow of the Royal Society. And in 2010, she received the Michael Faraday um, Award Prize for her excellence in science communication. So I know you're in for a fantastic talk and I will hand it over to Jocelyn who's going to tell us if we will make it to the end of 2012. Thank you very much. Thank you for turning out on a lovely evening. It is gorgeous, and I'm sure there are many other wonderful things to do in Oxford tonight. So, thank you for being here. I do a lot of public talks to all sorts of audiences, and starting several years ago, most often in the USA, most often talking to school audiences, at the end of the talk, regardless of what it was about, somebody would put up their hand and say, is the world going to end in 2012? And after a few of these, I thought I ought to investigate. And this talk is the outcome of that investigation. And I will need a drink of water if I'm going to talk this loud. And it's still not working. Okay. So, is the world going to end in 2012? What's all this about? It seems to be linked to the Mayan calendar. The Mayans had a very good calendar based on astronomical things. And like our calendar, it had cycles. We have weeks, months, years, decades, centuries, millennia. And they had all sorts of cycles as well. Lovely, thank you very much. They had cycles that were different from ours, and in particular they had one... <coughs> Excuse me, this will be needed. They had one which we call very romantically the long count. It was a cycle that's a bit over 5,000 years. And one of their long counts started about 3,000 and something BC and comes to an end this year on December the 21st. Civilizations, I think they're civilizations, subsequent to the Mayans have added to this and saying the world's going to end when the Mayan calendar ends. That's not part of Mayan cosmology. They understood cycles. They might have called it a death and a rebirth, and doubtless they had a big party, but they did expect, so to speak, to turn over the page and go back to work in a few days' time. It wasn't a catastrophic end that they envisaged. So somebody since the Mayans has taken this Mayan calendar and built all this doomsday stuff on it. And some people have become remarkably precise about just when the world's going to end. It's the 21st of December this year, either at 11.11 a.m. GMT, 
or 11.11pm UT. Now UT and GMT are basically the same thing, so there's a 12-hour ambiguity. I used to think all these 11s were resonating with the armistice at the end of the First World War, which you remember was signed at 11am on the 11th of the 11th month. But actually, I think there's an astronomical reason, and I think they're wrong by one minute. <laughs> December the 21st is the solstice, when the sun is further south. And in 2012, the moment that the sun is further south, on the 21st of December, is 11.12 a.m. So if we make it to midday on the 21st of December, we've done it. We're okay. <laughs> So that's the prediction, and that's the most precise and informative bit there is. As to how the world is going to end, well, you name it. Volcanoes, hurricanes, landslides, tidal waves, and lots of astronomical things, lots of hazards from space. And those are the things that I want to follow up on. Because to date, although tsunamis and earthquakes and volcanoes have caused considerable damage and loss of life, they haven't taken out the whole Earth. And we're talking about something that's either going to physically destroy the whole Earth or at least wipe out all the living things. So I'm concentrating on astronomical things, and there's a plethora of them. There's a number of them concerned with the sun. Whoa, the sun's magnetic field is going to reverse, and clearly that will be the end of the world. Or, Whoa, there's going to be a huge solar storm, and that will be the end of the world. Well, the sun's magnetic field does reverse every 11 years. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's not wrong, it's right. <laughs> And the last reversal was 2010. And the one before that was about 11 years before it, 1999, 1988, 1977. I won't ask how old you are, but you will have experienced a number of these reversals. You remember them clearly because of the trauma, don't you? <laughs> there have been millions of these reversals since there's been hominoids on Earth, and it doesn't seem to have affected our evolution. Besides, the last reversal was 2010. The next one is 11 years after, 2021. There isn't one in 2012. So what is the fuss about? Okay, it's not magnetic field reversals, it's solar storms. Solar storms are when the sun blasts out a great jet of charged particles, protons, electrons. And as the sun spins, this beam sweeps around, a bit like the water coming out of a hose as you swing around. And some of it may fall on Earth. This has happened before, because the solar storms tend to correlate with activity on the sun, sunspots on the sun. Is it working? Whoa, thank you. <laughs> That's marvellous, thank you very much. So whenever there are lots of spots on the sun, there's likely to be solar storms. And we have experienced some before. The biggest one we've experienced so far caused some damage in Quebec, in northern Canada because their power grid, their electric supply grid, was badly wired and had a loop in it. The logic of it wasn't good. And this solar storm made the Earth's magnetic field change, induced a current which flowed the wrong way through the Canadian grid and burnt out some transformers. We have, I believe, now learnt to be careful about how we wire our power grids. You will still hear in the news every few weeks, whoa, biggest solar storm coming for five years, beware of power outages. Rubbish. Biggest solar storm for five years because we've been through a minimum. 
So, you know, it's bigger than nothing. It isn't necessarily big, period. Besides which, the next peak in the sunspot activity is late 2013, not 2012. So the chances of major solar storms, or for that matter, excellent aurora borealis, is limited until late 2013. It's a bit like predicting the weather. Freakish things can happen, but the odds are that the, mo the greatest probability of solar storms is late 2013. As the sunspots decayed at the end of last cycle, went through a minimum 2010, uh, something funny seemed to be happening. The new sunspot cycle didn't start, and didn't start, and didn't start. And now it's picked up and is starting, but we have been through the biggest, deepest minimum for a century. And one of the consequences of this is that the next peak in sunspots in 2013 is only going to be about half the height of the peaks we've had in the last 80, 100 years. So again, the chances of a solar storm are not huge. What will matter with any solar storm is what it does to satellites that we've put up and what it does to astronauts who happen to be up in space. Too many solar storms can give astronauts radiation sickness. It's one of the problems about sending people to Mars. How do we protect them on that six-month journey, I think it is, from solar storms? And I don't know, how many of you have got a handheld device that has GPS? Quite a few. Your GPS is dependent on satellites up there. And if a good solar storm comes along and zaps a few satellites, your GPS won't be available, at least to begin with. And if you have phones that use satellites, they might not be available. So don't lose your old navigation skills. You might need them. But I don't think the world is going to end. So as far as I can see... Nothing from the sun is going to give us problems. Well, there's also concerns about the Earth. Whoa, the Earth's magnetic field is going to reverse. And clearly, that'll wipe out the Earth. And furthermore, as the Earth's magnetic field reverses, the Earth will stop spinning and then start spinning the other way. <laughs> well, the Earth's magnetic field does reverse typically every 300,000 years. We've actually had a longer spell than that since a reversal, nearly 750,000 years, so we are overdue a reversal. Apparently what happens with these reversals is the Earth's magnetic field shrinks, decays, but does not disappear totally. If you like, the bar magnet in the middle turns over, and then the magnetic field grows in the opposite direction. Geologists call this a flip, but that's a flip on a geological timescale. It takes 5,000 years. There's some evidence at the moment that the Earth's magnetic field is decaying, about 5% a century. But we've only been measuring it for two centuries, and we don't know whether the Earth's field always sort of meanders about a bit or whether this is the beginning of a flip. Even if we assume it's the beginning of the flip, the flip's going to take 5,000 years and it's not going to be done in time for December of this year. For the scientists in the audience, it's the dipole component of the field that goes. The other components remain. Uh, what else do I need to say about this? There's been tool using man on Earth, tool using people on Earth, for about two and a half million years. And since then, there's been about a dozen reversals. And we're still here. It doesn't look as if it affected our evolution. There's no evidence for mass extinctions at the time the magnetic field reverses. Um, so the evidence for any 
biological problems is limited, but I think it's probably fair to say the jury is still out because there are some researchers in Japan working on small organisms in the oceans and they say they disappear at the time of a Earth's magnetic field reversal. My understanding of how we've got a magnetic field of the Earth is not the picture I was taught as a child. As, I, as a child I was taught there was this giant ring of molten iron circulating and that generated the magnetic field. And with that picture you can see that explaining a reversal would be quite difficult. In fact it's what's known as a dynamo effect. There's a little circulating current of iron and that is amplified by the Earth's rotation. And that could change, that little thing could change quite easily and its new direction be amplified by the Earth's rotation. So I don't think there's any danger of the Earth stopping spinning or spinning the other way either. So I don't think the Earth is going to have something drastic happen that will cause the end of all life, and it certainly won't in December 2012. What about the planets? Have you seen recently Mars, no, Jupiter and Venus close together in the sky? And sometimes there was a crescent moon there as well. A little grouping, in that case of three things, is called an alignment or a conjunction. What would happen to the Earth if all the planets and the Earth and the Sun, sorry, the Moon and the Sun, were gathered in the same direction, in the same part of the sky? Could it tug the Earth out of its orbit? Could it tear the Earth apart with tidal effects? These are fairly easy sums to do, and the quick answer to both of those is no. Uh, we're held very strongly to the sun and the effect of the other planets is negligible. Absolutely negligible. In terms of tidal effects, gradient of gravity, tearing things apart, well, in this case, it's the moon that has the dominant effect. The sun adds about 25% and the planets add zilch. And we recognize that from thinking about tides on Earth. The tides in the sea are governed by the moon, with the sun adding in so that you get spring tides and neap tides. So it doesn't look as if planets can pull us away from the sun or pull us apart. But another thing to think about is stuff in the solar system that might collide with us. And there's a range of possibilities there. There is apparently a rogue planet called Nibiru, which is going to collide with the Earth on the 21st of December this year. It was apparently spotted by the ancient Sumerians, who flourished about 2500 BCE. And they managed to ascertain its period, which is about 3600 years. And Putting together the information about the period and the fact it's going to collide with the Earth, you can pin down its orbit pretty well. There are a number of possibilities. I'm opting for the most conservative and least extreme. And remember that this is the least extreme option, as I explained to you some of the abnormalities of this planet and its orbit. The orbit is about 470 astronomical units long. An astronomical unit is the Earth-Sun distance, 96 million miles. So it's about 500 times that. And it's an unusual orbit because it's very elliptical. The orbits of the planets around the Sun are almost circular. The orbit of Nibiru is very, very long and thin extremely long and thin. So that if we see Nibiru, no, let me start that sentence again. You normally spot a planet because it moves across the star field. Remember the word planet means wanderer, wanders amongst the stars. Nibiru, because its orbit is very long and thin, is basically doing an out and back, and it's not going across any star field. Furthermore, the ancient Sumerians saw it 
against the Milky Way, indeed against the centre of the Milky Way, a very, very crowded star field. So in this very crowded star field, they have lit on one of the points of light and said, that's Nibiru. And it's moving in an orbit with a period of 3,600 years. Actually, to determine an orbit, you should observe something for two complete cycles. 7,200 years. But there hasn't been 7,200 years since the ancient Sumerians. So they must have been very, very brilliant astronomers. The other interesting thing is you can work out where Nibiru was in this orbit at the time the ancient Sumerians were flourishing and it was about 400 astronomical units away, 10 times the distance of Pluto. Has anybody seen Pluto with the naked eye? Or Uranus? Or Neptune? Let alone something at 10 times the distance of Pluto because they didn't have telescopes at the time of the ancient Sumerians, to the best of our knowledge. So they were bloody good astronomers. <laughs> so if they're going to be able to see Nibiru at that kind of distance, it's got to be physically very big. Planets don't produce their own light. They're like big, dirty mirrors. They reflect sunlight. But if something is a way, way out at 10 times the distance of Pluto, the sunlight is pretty dilute by the time it gets out there, and by the time it's been reflected back to Earth, it's even more dilute. So in order for the ancient Sumerians to be able to see it with the naked eye, that planet has to be 150 times the size of the sun. I think that number's right. Let me just check. Yep, 150 times the size of the sun, or it would have a mass about 3 million times the mass of the sun. And they don't make planets like that. They don't even make stars like that. So it's not a planet. But Earth is unusual because, sorry, Sun is unusual because it's a single star. It doesn't seem to have a companion star. Most stars come in binaries, in pairs, that dance round each other, held together by their mutual gravity. And the Sun does not seem to have a companion. Unless this is it, unless Nibiru is actually the sun's companion star. It would have to be a very faint kind of star called a brown dwarf, but that's okay. A brown dwarf at 10 times the distance of Pluto would look like a bright star or look bright like one of the other planets look to us. So you could see it with the naked eye. The snag is, if it is a brown dwarf, and it's going to collide with the Earth in December this year, it's now at the distance of the asteroid belt. It's brighter than the full moon. So you've seen it. You can see it in the daylight or nighttime. Who's seen it? <laughs> well, that's interesting. It doesn't exist. I think this is fiction. Somebody's had great fun with this fiction. And I've had great fun unpicking the fiction, but I think it's fiction. And of all the things I talk about, this one is peculiar because it's pure fiction. All the other things I talk about, there is a grain of correct science to begin with, and then somebody builds a scary edifice on that grain of science. But this one, I think, doesn't even have a grain of science in it. Well, another possibility is that an asteroid could collide with the Earth. They do from time to time, we know. There are craters to prove it. There's what's wrongly known as Meteor Crater or Barringer Crater in the United States, which was actually created by an asteroid, probably about 50 metres across, probably several thousand years ago. And something like that should come along every 50 years. Sorry. 5,000 years. It's... No, wait a minute, let's get this right. What, every One of these should come... It's 50 metres, 5,000 years ago, and one of these should come along every 1,000 years or so. And it makes a crater about a mile across, which is tough if that's where you were living. <laughs> but it doesn't actually take out the Earth. 
or kill everybody. There are some bigger craters. There's one they've recently discovered, which is half on the land in Mexico and half under the Caribbean, I guess it is. It's known as Chicxulub. And it's suspected that this impact was what caused the extinction of the dinosaurs and so on 65 million years ago. That is disputed, I have to say, by some people, but the mainstream is that the impact of that thing caused the extinction of the dinosaurs. That thing was probably about one kilometre in size, and we expect one of those every 50 to 100 million years. Sorry, thousand, yes, million years. And this last one was probably 65 million years ago, so we're, we're getting due for the next one. But we've come to recognise that these things are dangerous, these big ones. Because when they hit the earth, they kick up a lot of dust, they stir things up, they upset the atmosphere, dust in the atmosphere cuts out sunlight, crops don't grow, things can't live. And there's now a whole scheme to look out for these things coming along to impact earth. And if something were going to hit us, uh, we would get two or three years warning and we don't see any sign of anything that's actually going to hit Earth this year. The next thing that we're worried about might come along in 2880. It was last round about in 1950. It's out and it's coming back again. It's known as DA150. It's about a kilometre in size. But given enough warning, there are ways we can divert these things as they come in. It's expensive, but we could do it. The first thing you have to do, though, is to watch these things, get their orbit as exactly as you can, and decide whether it is actually going to hit the Earth, or whether it's going to be a near miss, or whether it's going to be a wide miss. And that's actively going on. There's about a thousand objects being monitored at any one time. And gradually things are lost from that list as it becomes clear that they're not going to hit the Earth and new things are added to the list as they're found and they're candidates for a while till they're dismissed. So impacts matter, but I think we are reasonably under control on that one. And there's nothing due this year. The final thing to mention concerns our galaxy, the Milky Way, and the black hole at the centre of the galaxy. We know there's a black hole in the centre of our galaxy. It weighs some tens of millions of times the mass of the sun. Many galaxies have big black holes at their centre. Ours is actually a little tame as things go, but you still wouldn't want to bump into it on a dark night. And somebody has noticed that on December the 21st this year, as viewed from the Earth, we will see the Sun in line with that black hole. Therefore, we are going to fall into the black hole that day. Well, actually, December the 21st, every year this happens. <laughs> and so far, we haven't fallen into the black hole. And furthermore, even if we got the Earth going towards the centre of the galaxy at the speed of light and that's quite a big if, uh, it would take us, check, 26,000 years to get there. So we'd be late for the appointment. <laughs> and actually we're busy whirling around in a circle, and that whirling of itself prevents us from falling into the centre. We're much more tightly bound to the sun than to that black hole in the middle. So I don't think that's a serious thing either. But just to finish up with some more general remarks, having gone through a number of scenarios, none of which convince me that the world's going to end. On the web, you can buy all sorts of things to mark the end of the earth. Never waste a good crisis. Make some money. So you can buy mugs and T-shirts and bags and that kind of thing. And you can also buy some personal survival gear. Gas masks, water purification tablets, the SAS Survival Handbook. 
And I'm interested to note that a number of these survival kits come with a 120-day money-back guarantee. <laughs> what is going on here? There's a lot of misinformation being put around. Who benefits from it? Who falls for it? Uh, what can we do about it? Have some of you seen the 2012 disaster movie? Yeah, some. I don't think it was a very good one, but there was, there was this movie, so so, right. And for a while I thought it was the movie people that were driving this scare, but actually I now think that they were just climbing on the bandwagon. They do have a very nasty website, the Institute for Human Continuity. Looks really academic, except it's too good to be academic. Contains interviews with experts about how the world's going to end, this kind of thing. Um, there's a really nice website that I commend to you, Many Endings, www.manyendings, all one word, .com. And the front page of that is a succession of dates, and you click on your favourite date, and up come a list of all the reasons why the world was going to end that year, and didn't. Uh, it's quite fun. There's a, a rash of these predictions around the millennia, needless to say. Now, in many instances, behind these scares, as I've already said, there's a piece of correct science. But something has been built on that, deliberately and with some knowledge, to make something scary and plausible if you don't know too much science. Who does it? Who benefits? Many of us don't seem to know enough science to be to recognize when we're being sold something stupid or told something stupid. There have been similar scares over HIV AIDS, over the MMR vaccination, um, maybe over GM crops, depends where you stand on that one. And in the United States particularly, there's climate change uh, dissenters, people who take a piece of scientific fact and then build on it something to show that all this stuff about climate change is rubbish. The, some of those cost lives. This one hasn't except that. Do you remember Comet Hale-Bopp? The best comet we've had for a while. There was a group in America that believed there was a satellite coming along in the tail of Comet Hale-Bopp, and it was coming along to take them away to a better life elsewhere. The only snag was they had to leave everything terrestrial behind, including their bodies. So at the point at which they reckoned the satellite was going to land, there was a mass suicide. But mostly this end of the world stuff doesn't cause deaths. But some of the other scares in, in the medical and life sciences side do. And if we could find how to deal with these scares, we might save a number of lives. But actually it's very hard to put a lid on this. Because people who really believe the world's going to end will say things like, well, NASA knows planet Nibiru's on its way. The American government knows Nibiru is on its way. The British government knows Nibiru is on its way. They're hiding it from us. And they won't listen to somebody like me. And I think they're probably similar patterns for the other scares. And I honestly don't know how to deal with this. I'm beginning to wonder if rational arguments actually will convince everybody. Are we touching latent emotions? is that there seems to be definitely something irrational behind all this. And that's something we might like to talk about. I think there's a need to help people discern what are good websites and what are rubbish websites. Um, probably particularly younger people with less experience. And it would be great if we could create a society that was numerate enough, scientifically literate enough, that knew 
when it was being told a rubbish story and didn't believe some of these rather crazy things. So if anybody's got good ideas about how to do that, we'd all be very interested to hear. And thank you for your interest. Thank you. Okay. Uh, uh, if necessary, I'll repeat it. Yeah. Um, I'm just interested. You say we monitor in the astral world, um, and I'm not, I'm not one of the paranoid people. You. <laughs> but I mean, uh, what's the use of that information? I mean, is there anything? Is it? Is it? Would it be possible to act on information like yeah. something getting out of way? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, if we spot a big asteroid that we're quite clear is going to hit the Earth. There are, are already a number of things we can do, and uh, with time we're developing more. But, for example, suppose I'm a dangerous asteroid coming to hit you. Uh, what you do, or one of the things you can do, is send up a rocket alongside me, and on the rocket is a large can of paint, white paint, or maybe a bag of white chalk, and you paint me white. Now, suppose the sun is over there, up in the upper bar, the sunlight coming along and bouncing off me, and it bounces off me nicely because I'm white, actually drives me a bit away. So instead of coming straight for you, I head to the side and miss the earth. Because the sunlight bouncing off me pushes me. Yep. Sorry? It pushes me away from the sun, so it adds another... Changes the orbit. Changes the orbit, yes. Yeah. You can do a similar thing by planting on me what's called a solar... Yeah. How big would a rocket have to be? How long How long would get Don't know. Don't know. And how do you make sure I'm painted all over? Because asteroids are often tumbling. But, yeah. Maybe it's two rockets, one on each side, you know. A bit like a car wash. <laughs> <laughs> How would they do that in space? Because the paint's not going to get to the... Uh, you jet it. You jet it. <laughs> it's just going to go into space, then? You can direct a jet. <laughs> that, that, that's okay. It would be expensive to do, and the nations would have to act together. Um, but it'll get easier and better with time as well. I thought they were expecting an asteroid to approach, to approach in 2014. Uh, there was talk of one in 2029. Apophis was its name. Is its name? They've now decided it's not going to hit the Earth. And this this is what often happens. You know, you're watching it. The orbit's a bit uncertain because you haven't measured it well enough, and maybe it'll hit you. But actually, no, it won't hit you. Go some other direction. You, you ultimately decide. So, yeah. uh, you could also plant a big solar sail on an asteroid. A solar sail is like a giant sheet of cooking foil. So you, I'm going to drop the microphone a minute. So you spread out a great big foil thing to catch the sunlight, and the sunlight bouncing off this foil again drives away from the sun and changes your orbit so you no longer hit the Earth. Um, what, whoops, that's not what I'm going to pick up. <laughs> What's not a good idea is to send up a rocket and break me into pieces. The Americans would love to do this. <laughs> it's actually stupid because then you have a load of pieces to track. Um, there might be some way you can send up a rocket with an explosive head and explode it beside me and that way change my orbit, but not at me. And with time, we'll develop things like gravity tugs and other things. So. Yeah, I mean, you have to catch this asteroid. Sorry? You have to catch it somewhere else before it gets anywhere near us. Yeah, if you're using something like the sunlight bouncing off you, it's a small effect, but if you keep applying it, yeah, you'd, you'd be wanting to do it for a few years. 
The, the interesting thing is if there's enough money to divert it so as it doesn't hit New York, but it does hit India. You know, who's going to take that sort of decision? Those aren't actually rockets. Those are the satellites without the rockets that do the swing bikes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, they were launching the rockets to begin with. Some way out. You're going to have to get a pretty powerful rocket you need a big to get it out there a long yes. way out, aren't you? Yeah. You're going to have to get it pretty damn quick, really, aren't you? It's going to be a pretty big rocket. Emergency, yes, rush. Yeah. 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 I guess we haven't got a rocket big enough built yet. No. I don't know, to be honest, but people imply that this is, this is reasonable as a technique. Perhaps this, this, perhaps this title is really referring to ourselves. Perhaps we as human beings will bring about our own demise in 2012. <laughs> Rather than some natural catastrophe, perhaps there will be a global war or something like that. So look at North Korea and think, where will this go? Yeah, or look at climate change, yes, which probably won't that. kill us in 2012, but is a serious issue. Mm. Yeah. Reference to uh, asteroids and things, to what extent do you think that the fact that we've got all these other planets further out from us, is that more protective or is it more of a sort of pain in the ass because it's affecting the orbits of all of these asteroids or are they taking the hit for us more do you think? Uh, the big planets like Jupiter and Saturn are the ones with the most gravity and therefore the most influence and I think they're sort of 50-50 good and bad. Um, they attract to them some things that might otherwise hit us, but they also attract or change the orbits of some things that do hit us. So uh, I think they're good and bad, or they're facts of life, put it that way. <laughs> We've got a couple of questions over here. Um, just to come back to monitoring our asteroids, in terms of what's being done at the moment, who's it's not all one nation, it's a number of nations, but it's not every nation. Um, looking out for asteroids fits very well with another kind of astronomy that's come to the well, come to the fore is too strong, becoming of interest in recent years. And that's looking for things that are transient things that flare up and die in the course of a night, for example. And there's a whole network of telescopes now looking for transients that will also pick up things that move, like asteroids. So the two go along very well. Um, some uh, of the specific asteroid work is funded in the US, I suspect by US government, basically. Um, Britain has relatively little of that. US is probably the only place that does much of the specifically asteroid monitoring, but the asteroid monitoring is now um, inevitably part of many people's research programs. of things there and I wasn't sure to begin with whether you said science education or science communication I think actually both are important um, 
if people left school with a better grip of what science was, and, and even the fact that science scientists argue with each other and that's what we're meant to do, that would be quite an advance. Um, but yes, also science communication and what you consider to be reliable science communication and um, how GM crops doesn't get mixed up with Monsanto and, and things like that. Uh, it, it's, it's a big, big issue. Uh, it's relatively easy in astronomy because there aren't seeds to sell or, or things like that. So there's much less commercial interest. There's much more nutter interest. Um, so six of one and half a dozen of another. I, and yes, I think the point you were alluding to about what's reliable and what's not is extremely important. Um, when people ask me how do you tell a good website from a bad one in these kinds of areas, what I tend to say is look for websites from professional bodies, from academic, which means .edu in the United States and .ac.uk in Britain. Uh, but we could probably do with some system of kind of kite marking, branding websites, and I, I don't know who should do it. But it's getting a bit <laughs> too deregulated, shall we say. So there are lots of issues there. Somebody there silhouetted him. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I sort of had to say something which probably means I'll get kicked out of the pub, but I quite, I quite like the idea that um, these are nutters, but somehow we need nutters. Somehow that's the stories that people have created actually makes the world a more interesting place. Yeah. And so a kind of marking might be a good idea so that you know you're reading a story instead of reading science. But yeah. the two aren't exclusive. But everyone likes a good conspiracy. And, and, and that's a huge part of it because actually everyone likes a good end of the world story. Yeah. Okay, you have people who are going to sell who are going to gain from that. But actually, in terms of public interest and public interest in science, you don't get people interested in the topic. So you have the crazy, but actually, a lot of the general public quite enjoy. A, we do seem to like being scared, don't we? It's part, I think, part of human psyche for a lot of people. And that I don't quite understand. But, you know, we go to scary films. Why? Kids like scary stories. Or some kids. Why? It would seem to me that it's important to make a distinction between a nutter who may be dangerous to anyone herself and somebody like the MMR case who defends everybody else. And it seems yeah. to me that having yes. astronomy, <coughs> if people decide to commit suicide because they think something's hiding behind it, I'm like, well, that's better to look at, right? Yeah. 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 What do you get? What do you get? Whereas if, if they're if they dating all of our families by changing public policy irrationally, then we certainly weren't targeted. Yes. I think that's a very good point about distinguishing between nutters who are only a danger to themselves and others who are a danger to communities of one sort or another. Um, the snag is some of the nutters who are only a danger to themselves actually have disciples who go with them. And that's some of the mass suicides in the USA fall into that category. But um, There are interestingly now people who research sects and have learned to spot danger signs when the sect's going to do something daft. So maybe then they would be allowed to intervene and at least pull the disciples away, if not the, the key person. Yeah. Uh, and it's also a bit complicated because with something like vaccination, um, okay, free choice, maybe you don't vaccinate your kids, but then are they going to infect other kids? So it, it's, it's not quite as clean as you were asserting to begin with, but I still think you have a very important point. It's a free choice, but the free choice can be made on accurate information, not on fictitious information we know statistics You made a, a sort of good point, really, about um, interesting you know, making things exciting. If science could somehow be made more exciting, more interesting, 
done them very, very dry in, in school, especially with, with the young, you know, catching people sort of eight, nine, ten, and then, then taking that forward. But that's very difficult. It's very difficult for teachers to do that. Um, I've never really got an interest in science till late 20s. I'm a mechanical engineer, I did a degree late in life. But, but to try and find that and, and get that fascination, make it exciting, yeah. and, and even actually bring science into um, other contexts, like, you know, in soap operas, would that turn people off? Throw the occasional graph in there? No. <laughs> <laughs> we see no graphs on television. If we do, they start at zero, they start at five. There's a good reason. I bet you had more fun at school in a chemistry class, I did. You know, diodes, turn it up the way, blow it up, stick bombs, do whatever. We had more fun in the classroom to get to Well, funnily enough, chemistry wasn't one of the three old ones. That's a science. We had more fun doing that. Cutting open the mice or whatever. Or a frog. But you may have noticed that I use this talk as a vehicle for teaching quite a bit of astronomy. A geeky question, yeah. I'm curious about this idea that you say that every 21st of December there's an alignment between the Earth, the Sun, and the black hole. Yeah. So the longest, shortest day depends on the angle of the no, the longest, shortest day business is to do the tilt with the Earth's axis. But the, it, what I'm talking, uh, we need. That's the black hole at the centre of the galaxy. This black microphone. My glass. This diagram's not to scale. <laughs> <laughs> the glass is the sun, and my finger is the Earth's axis. Now, on the 21st of December, it's aligned like that, and Northern Hemisphere is kind of pointing away from the sun, so we have a short day. It's absolute chance that this happens when we're lined up with the sun and the centre of the Milky Way. So the centre of the Milky Way has no influence on it so No. Nope. It's just a concept. No. Yeah. Sorry, yes? Um, when you talk about the magnetic field of the Earth, yeah. Uh, flipping on a massively long cycle. It comes mainly from the sea floor spreading. You know that uh, the Atlantic is getting wider, about a centimeter a year, same sort of rate as your fingernails grow. Um, so, yeah, uh, uh, South Africa, uh, Africa, and South America used to be fitted together. You may have seen from their shape on the atlas that they would fit together. They did used to fit together. And then what's called a rift formed between them. And I need to put the microphone down for this. So here's the globe. Here's South, uh, South America. Here's Africa. They used to be joined up. And from the centre of the earth, there's a great plume of hot material molten lava coming up and moving sideways and that's gradually carrying South, South America and Africa further and further apart and the sea floor is continually being um, renewed from the centre so the bits nearest um, South America and Africa are the oldest bits and as you get closer to the mid-Atlantic you're at the newer bits now, where there are iron crystals, they will lie down, lay down, aligned with the magnetic field. And if you look at the way those are orientated and do it in black and white for the two different orientations, the sea floor looks a bit like a bar chart that you have, you know, on one of the things you buy in a supermarket. It's black and white stripes. And the black and white stripes are mirror images of each other, with the mirror at the rift where the spreading comes. So it's from this seafloor spreading uh, and determining which way little magnetic crystals are laid down that you can see that it's done some flipping.
Yes. Comment about how many of his friends are fairly ignorant about basic astronomy things like the size of the solar system, how long the Earth takes to go around the sun. And that's in spite of Brian Cox, <laughs> who's probably teaching a lot of people quite a lot. I hope you join me in giving Jocelyn a warm round of applause and thanks for And thanks all for coming up and as usual putting up with our microphone issues. And we've got flyers out for next month. And like I said, you can go to our website if you want to see about about planning events. But Please feel free to stay around and have a chat and a drink. You can come and talk to us if you want to find out more about what we do. And I know Jocelyn is going to stick around for a little bit. So if anyone wants to ask her anything and talk to her a bit more, I'm sure she'll be more than welcome. Thank you. Okay, so I'm joined with uh, Professor Jocelyn Bell Burnell. Um, she's currently president of the British Science Association, and she's joined us to talk about the uh, end of the world in 2012. Um, bit of a spoiler, uh, not, not really going to happen. Don't think so, actually, <laughs> no. <laughs> Buy your Christmas presents. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, but what we do know is that the, the fate of the Earth is definitely linked to the fate of our Sun. So what, what sort of thing is going to happen at the end of the life cycle of the Sun that's going to affect us? Right. Well, assuming that human beings don't bring about the end of the world first, um, the Sun will make life very difficult in about a billion years. The Sun is, of course, evolving, and as it evolves, it's gradually getting a little bit hotter and a little bit hotter. And in about a billion years, it will have heated the Earth so much that oceans boil. And I think at that stage, we probably can't live here. That sounds like it would be a little bit too warm for us. Um, yeah. So I guess uh, we have no real immediate worries other than ourselves. So, which kind of leads me on to my next question, which is, just, if, I, if I had to, to make you put money on it, what do you think would be the, the closest thing or the, the, um, the event which is most likely to cause maybe the end of civilization, if not the end of the world? Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's useful to distinguish about whether we're talking about the end of people or the end of the whole planet. Uh, I'm seriously worried about climate change. I think we need to take some actions to prevent the atmosphere getting too full of carbon and the temperature going up for that reason. That's uh, anthropogenic, like human cause. Well, yes. I mean, it's not absolutely proven that that's happening, but it'll be a long time before it is scientifically proven. And this is a sufficiently serious issue. We can't afford to wait that long. No. So we ought to act as if it were proven. So how do you think we could go about trying to convince the government as members of the voting public, perhaps, to sort of try and uh, act towards that? Well, I believe individual activity is responsible for about a third of the increase in carbon. So there's a lot as individuals we can do, you know, insulating houses and things like that. But it is also important that governments, taxation regimes, things like that, uh, try to help as well. Yeah. Well, I've got you here. I have to say, so what do you think is one of the most interesting things currently going on in, um, in, in your own field of astrophysics? The thing that interests me the most is the attempt to detect gravitational waves. The, the radiation that Einstein predicted, sometimes called ripples in space-time, and there's some very fine equipment uh, which has been developed, is currently being tweaked, upgraded, and I hope that very soon we'll have some direct detections, and that'll be real fun. We already have some indirect detections of this kind of radiation, um, exactly at the level as predicted by Einstein. It would be really nice to be able to directly detect them because it would be a whole new kind of astronomy, working in a whole new regime. Excellent. So that would potentially lead on to further advances in astronomy in general, so that you could look into uh, different aspects of the, of the universe, perhaps sort of black holes and, and different ways of detecting things. Yes, it seems that every time in science that you open up a new field, you discover all sorts of unexpected things, as well as being able to do a lot of things that you can predict that are very, very useful. So it, it'll be hugely exciting as that comes along. I believe shortly, uh, as part of your role as president of the British Science Association, we've got the um, British Science Festival coming up. Do you have any ideas what's going on going to be happening there? 
The Science Festival happens each year in September. This coming September it's in Aberdeen, which will be fun. Uh, there's a, a huge programme and I don't know that it's fully fixed yet. Um, I do know that the Physics and Astronomy section is going to do something about catastrophes, end of world, that kind of ambiance. I'm not sure the details are settled yet, but I do know that there is going to be that element in it. Okay, I can say I went last year to the uh, one in Bradford and it was a fantastic event. Uh, Jocelyn bell thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Details of our upcoming events can be found at our website, www.oxfordcybar.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Oxford Cybar and on Facebook, British Science Association, Oxfordshire Branch.